Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's go. Let's get to it. My name's Brad. I'm glad you're here. I'm one of the pastors. Welcome to Crosspoint on Resurrection Sunday. It is such a joy to be here with you today. In fact, there's no place I'd rather be than right here, right now with you, with the tremendous privilege to talk about what the creator of the universe has done for his people in the person and work of Jesus on the cross. As you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is where we will be today, we have been working our way for the past few months through the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. If you're from Crosspoint and this is your regular place here, you, you realize last week we left off in chapter 11. We're fast-forwarding to chapter 15 because it has this beautiful, in fact, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible about the resurrection of Jesus, so we're going to settle on that for today, and then next week we'll be back in chapter 11. Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to read these 11 verses, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to work my way back through these 11 verses. I want you to know that... uh, Very often, in fact, every Sunday, I feel a peculiar sort of gravity and gladness and a sense of God's grace that he would call somebody like me to preach and to pastor a church and to spend most of my life speaking about the gospel. That is is a turn of grace which is borderline scandalous. If you have found yourself in this place on a Sunday morning and it's Easter and you were drugged here by somebody and you're wondering whether or not somebody like you could ever really know and serve and make your life centered around Jesus, the answer to that question is yes. Because the scriptures say that and because I know that from my very own life. I was a rebel. I I wasn't wandering around needing self-improvement. I was on a sprint towards hell trapped in pride and arrogance and foolishness and lust and covetousness. And in spite of my lack of interest in God, he arrested me. And he made Christ real to me. And he can do the very same thing for you today. And so, let's read these words and ask the Lord to open our hearts. Paul is writing to a church that's very much like us. A gifted but selfish, self-absorbed church that needs to be reoriented to the truth of what Christ has done on the cross. And he writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord help us to understand these words. Father, I come to you in such thankfulness that in a mystery of your grace, you have awakened my eyes, my rebellious eyes, my dead heart to these truths. Lord, as I think on these things and as I preach on these things, Father, I pray for two things. Number one, for the Christian's in this room, for those who have already trusted and believed in Jesus, who have placed their hope in Him and what He has done on the cross, I pray that afresh we would be captivated by the good news of the gospel, that You would stir our hearts with affection for Jesus, that we would be so wrecked by grace There would never be a point in our lives when we get over or past the cross and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, secondly, I pray for people that are in this room that have not yet trusted in Jesus, those that are aware of the fact that they are not believers in Jesus yet, and those that are unaware, thinking that they have, but truly they have not because They have merely given mental assent or agreement to the gospel, but their life has not been made new by it. Lord, for those friends here today, would you do what only you can do? Would you cause scales to fall from their selfish eyes? Would you cause them to not lean on themselves? And would you cause them to look up and see Jesus so that they would trust in him and believe? Father, I pray that you would do these things as we work through this text for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. I pray it in that mighty name of Christ, our great God and King. Amen. All right, there's three things that I have today. I know that you like outlines. I take full culpability for making you an outline-dependent congregation. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. And so today we have three quick points. They come straight from the scriptures. This is not rocket science, friends. These are three very simple points. These three points are that Christ died for our sins. That's point number one. Point number two is that Christ was buried. And point number three is that Christ was raised. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. And Christ was raised. And we'll work our way back through those three things as we work our way back through this text. But I want you to look at two things before we start to unpack those truths, especially in the first two verses. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, he says, 
to remind the Corinthians. He says, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in in vain. There's two things that I want you just to take note of about Paul's initial instruction in this chapter to the Christians. The first is, is that the gospel is not something that we achieve. Rather, it is something that we, we receive. The gospel is not something that you do. And so if you have grown up in a, in a mistaken Christian culture where the sort of underlying subconscious message was is that you must get yourself right in order for God to receive you or accept you, really the inverse is what the gospel states, is that you can't do anything. There's nothing that you can bring to the table. There's no amount of good works, but that God in his graciousness, when he moves upon a human soul to save it, he makes that person new, not because of any merit based in that person's life, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And then he gives that dead heart that he has made alive, the gifts of faith and repentance, whereby then that dead sinner that is now made alive simply receives grace and life. So the first thing I want you to know is that we are, we are by nature religious people, but the gospel at its core is something that we don't do, but it's something that we simply receive. That's the first thing I want you to see. Secondly, Paul says to them about this gospel that it's something that they stand in, that there's this active sort of participation then. They stand in it. They are being saved by it. That's unusual, isn't it? We sort of think of salvation as sort of a one-time thing in the past, which it certainly is. I mean, there's a moment when you are born again, when you are made new, when you have passed from death to life, but yet there's a present tense, uh, all-consuming reality to our salvation. We are still being saved, sanctified continually, and we're to hold fast to this. We're to Hold on to it like a little child would hold on to their father or mother's leg. And so the second thing I want you to get is that the gospel is not something that we have a one-time interaction with. Rather, it is to be the central, dominating, and all-consuming center of our lives. The gospel, which Paul calls of first importance, is the only really piece of information that matters. It's not just a one-time hit. It's not just raising your hand on Friday night at youth camp or Maybe one time when the special preacher came through when you were a kid and you just responded to your altar call, the gospel is something that you receive solely by God's grace and then it becomes this piece of information of what Christ has done to make you new and give you the ability to respond to him. It becomes the all-encompassing aspect of your life. That's why this silly little thing that we have in Christian culture where like I put God first and then my family and then my work. I mean, I understand that sort of progression, but really it's better to think of the gospel and Christ as the hub. He's the center of everything. Everything emanates from him. Every aspect of your life is not like an individual silo where I go to church and I get a little gospel, and then Tuesday morning I gotta go to this meeting, and then I got some extra money that I can spend, and then I got a relationship, I hope this girl likes me, or I hope that guy will invite me to the dance or whatever. I know most of you are past that stage, but we tend to compartmentalize our lives. And the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible is about Christ and Christ alone. And he fills his people and his glory 
And his renown becomes the heartbeat. It becomes the center of their lives. And don't buy into the religious lie that somehow making this gospel the all-encompassing, all-consuming, driving force of your life is somehow a sort of religious, less-than-pleasurable experience. That is a lie. To serve Christ is where true joy is found. But much more can be said on that. Let's keep going. So those are two things. The gospel is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. And then it is the all-consuming center of our lives. So what is this gospel that, call, that Paul calls the gospel of first importance? This word gospel is from a Greek word, evangelion, that literally means the good news. And these verses here, these next few verses, verses 3 through 7, are some of the most clear sentences in the entire Bible of what this good news is. It says in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. That's point number one. Christ died for our sins. Friends, do you realize that at the core of the message of the good news, the core of the message of the gospel, the core message of the scriptures begins with this assumption that we are fallen beings. The Bible's clear about this. We are sinners. I think on some level we all, we all understand this. We all acknowledge this. I told this story several years ago, uh, but it fits today. And so if you're one of the old school cross point folks from back in our days in the schoolhouse, you may remember this story when my sin and the sin of an elderly lady collided one day in the public's parking lot. You know that corner building there where the dry cleaners and the Bradley Park Publix and the, the dry cleaners are there and there's like a rental car place? And if you are going down Whitesville Road and you turn in, if you're, you're wanting to drop off dry cleaning there and you turn in that back little driveway kind of closest to Panera Bread, that would mean that your passenger side window then rolls up to the door. And God forbid that you actually have to get out of the car and hand the clothes. I mean, we'd have to walk 10 feet. So most of us, don't we? We, we, we roll around the front of Publix, and then we take a hard left right there so that we can just hand the clothes out the window to the lady at the dry cleaning place. You've done that, haven't you? Right? But you see, when you... and I, So I was doing that this day. In fact, I had nothing else to do. I actually bypassed that one back entrance because I didn't want to walk 10 feet, and I drove all the way around, came around, went around, and then I took that... Or I wanted to take that hard left, you know, right there. But actually, when you take that hard left, you're actually kind of in that sort of, that sort of agreed-upon lane that's going the other way, you know. And so right around that time, this, well, this lady who was a little bit older than me was driving like a big boat Cadillac, you know. She was driving this car and she was doing what she should she was where she was supposed to be and because I've done this before and I know I'm not just going to burn around that left because there might be somebody there I was inching up slowly and so I'm right there at the corner of the building kind of if I would have kept going straight I'd gone right into that you know that gas station right there and so she sees me and she slows and I slow down and I want to take a left and so I I kind of wave her on right I wave her on like no 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 you you go and she's thinking, why would you go? I'm stopped. You just go around. But she didn't realize that I had clothes that I wanted to just drop off in the window, right? And she gives me this look. She may 
be one of your grandmother. She might even be in this room today. And she gives me this look. When I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was like, you know, I was giving it. No, just, just go ahead. I, I even, I was like with the left hand, I was giving it to, no, go ahead. And she looks at me with just disgust. But she had a little dog with her in the car. And that dog was on her shoulder. So she's got her hands on the steering wheel, and she's got a dog on her shoulder, and she's giving me looks of disgust because I want to hug the building and turn left. And so when she gave me her look of just exacerbated, just disgust, I'm, I'm going like, I want to turn left, and quickly, her look caused me to get angry, and my little, polite little, I want to go, started to point on the dog. On, you think I'm jacked up because oh, you got a dog on your shoulder, lady. <laughs> and so, on a beautiful day in Columbus, Georgia, at the corner of Publix, a preacher and a sweet old lady's sin nature collided. Friends, that's a silly little example, but really, isn't it, isn't it clear to us that we are broken? Isn't it clear? Just think about the things that run through your mind. Think about the re rebellion that swells up in our heart, even for those of us that know Jesus. The Bible is clear about this as well. Let me read to you some scriptures about what the Bible says about our problem with sin. The Bible is very serious about sin. It is pervasive and devastating in its nature. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Friends, whether you are a public felon whose sins are well known, or whether you're a good little kid that grows up in church, we are all born as sinners in rebellion against God. Some of us, our sin is more public and obvious and has more earthly consequences, but others of us, we have this inward sort of self-righteous morality where we, even in our seeming goodness, are making ourselves little gods because we are trusting in our own relative righteousness as sufficient before a creator. And we, I think, in a sense, are actually more wicked in our sin because our sin is one of idolatry where we, in our false sense of self-righteousness, make ourselves gods. It is pervasive. And it grips every human heart. And that is the beginning state. In fact, the clear biblical beginning state of every person in this room. It's left us also completely unable to make ourselves right or to do good. Friends, make no mistake, even though we are by nature sinners and that we have all fallen and separated ourselves from God, even though we can still participate in things that God, even when we're not Christians yet, He can redeem and use for His glory, at the core of our depravity, 
is this inability, this inability of every person to make themselves right. There is this futility that sin has caused that makes us completely unable to make ourselves right. We have lost the ability to stand before God with anything of value. The Bible's clear about that. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. He says that the mind that is set on the flesh, in other words, the mind that is not yet a Christian, a person who is still in their sin, the mind that is set on their flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now they may seem to us from the exterior like they are pleasing God, but at the core of a mind that has not been regenerated, at the core of a heart that has not been made new by God's grace, at the very base of that is still selfishness and idolatry. Because even good acts done there, apart from Christ, at their core, the motivation of it is to make much of ourselves, which is idolatry. And so sin has not only pervasively gripped every area of our life, it has made us completely unable to save ourselves. And friends, God's just and righteous response to our sin is that He is holy and He is just to judge us and separate us from Him. And the Bible is clear, friends, that that is the state of every person in this room that is not yet trusted in Jesus. Don't rely on man-centered notions of fairness. Every now and again, somebody will ask me an honest question, and I understand this question because I've asked it myself sometimes. But we come from a man-centered notion of fairness and justice. Sometimes we ask even a more elementary question of why could, how could God even allow sin? Why did he even allow me to rebel against him? Oh, friend, I think we need to enter into that question with a tremendous amount of humility. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 that the clay really has no right to ask the potter, why have you made me like this? And then he goes on in that chapter to say and allude to the fact that God has done this God in His mysterious providence, which is beyond our ability to trace and find out. But humbly we can look at Scriptures and say that God, it seems as though God in His great mysterious providence has allowed even the rebellion of His creation for the display of His glory. And so that God even allows sin. And He, he brings about before the foundations of time this plan for Christ to die on the cross for our sins. Not because it snuck up on him or because we rebelled and it tricked him, but because God, for a greater display of his glory and beauty and worth to all that is, deemed it so that he even allowed our rebellion so that at that time when he would show himself to the universe as the most glorious thing for the display of his greatness, even allowed sin so that he could save us. Friends, if that's not your natural orientation to scriptures, if that's not the way you come to the Bible, it would do you well to work that into your worldview. 
It's a worldview that is radically God-centered. Everything exists for the glory of God. Easter Sunday doesn't exist for you and to make much of you. It doesn't exist so that I can do a good sermon, or that we can fill a building and be proud of our attendance, or that we can be part of a church that seems to be on the move, or that we can pat ourselves on the back. God does not exist for us. We exist for Him, and everything exists for His glory, even the fall. And in his wise providence, he has deemed it so that Christ would die as a display of his glory. So if you're wondering, if you're frustrated at God about why you are wrecked with sin, friends, don't you see that these 80 years are not all there is to it? God, in his graciousness, wants to display his glory even through your life, even through the pit that you may be stuck in right now, to display his greatness. And the way he does that is through Christ dying on the cross. So why then, we might ask, why did Christ have to die for sins? Well, friends, we all understand crimes need to be punished. We have this sort of innate sense of human justice. Where do you think that comes from, by the way? Do you think that we mustered that up? Do you think that began with some Greek philosopher, Aristotle or Plato, or some of the cat with a cool beard that we make marble statues out of? No, this whole idea of justice comes because we've made, been made in the image of God. And so this innate sense of when there is a transgression or when there's an offense or when there's a crime, that there must be punishment, there must be recompense for that, that comes from God. And so the reason that Christ had to die for our sins is that crimes need to be punished. But here's the catch, friends, is that remember what sin has done to us. It has made us completely unable to save ourselves. It has made us an unworthy sacrifice for our own sins. And so in response to our sin, God comes himself in the person of Jesus to actually take the punishment for our sins. Listen to this. If, if you have a Bible and you're good at flipping around, go to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll have it on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. Now listen, this is, we're parachuting down into the middle of a book here, and so I, wanna, I don't want to just rip something out of context. So let me explain to you sort of the whole message of Hebrews. Hebrews is a book in the New Testament that is basically explaining how Jesus has become the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament animal sacrifices, right? So primarily in Leviticus, where they were sacrificing bulls and birds and goats and, and all of these temporary systems of atonement that God had set up for the Old Testament people of Israel to point them to that day when once and for all the Lamb of God would come and take away sins. He's pointing them to in the Old Testament his ultimate work on the cross. Well, now Hebrews is a letter to Christians who are sort of mixed up about that. And what Hebrews is doing is it's basically explaining to them the reason for Old Testament sacrifices pointing them forward to that once and for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, which we are here to celebrate today. And so with that as our backdrop, let me read quickly Hebrews 10, a few verses there. It says, For since the law, this Old Testament sacrificial system is what he's referring to there, has but a shadow of the good things to come to instead of... Let me start again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have not had to cease to be offered. 
since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that, look, this sacrificial system that they set up in the Old Testament, it was just a temporary thing to point you forward to Christ. And so I don't think any of you have participated in your lifetime in the sacrifices of bulls and goats. If you have, please stay after. We need to talk a little bit. But we have participated in human acts of sort of religious atonement, haven't we? Haven't we done that? And what what the writer is saying here is, look, that may make you feel good for a little while, but it should just point you to your need for a Savior outside of yourself. An extrinsic salvation. We can't, we can't do it within ourselves. Look, Christianity is not a Whitney Houston song. There is no great love that's in you. Those of you that were born in the 1990s know, but remember back in the day in the 80s, we, we were rocking that song. And I found the great... Never mind. I, I, it's a lie. There is no great love in you. Salvation is exterior And that's what he's saying here. It's not by bulls or goats or human effort. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. He's speaking to the Father here as he's quoting a psalm in the Old Testament. But a body you have prepared for me, meaning himself, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And so Jesus is quoting a psalm. I think it's Psalm 40. There, the writer is saying that Jesus is saying this. And so the whole Old Testament is about Christ, right? And so Christ has to die. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect lamb that doesn't need to be sacrificed again. He is the righteous one who is outside of our efforts. He is the perfect human who has not been tainted with sin. And so Christ dies on the cross for us as a perfect sacrifice. So just think about justice here. Listen, we understand. Look, if you, we were farmers and you stole 10 cattle from me and we had a little discussion about that one day and you said, oh, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. And then you show up with like one three-legged horse, you know, all jacked up, matty hair, just looking at you like, here, uh, will this do? No, that won't do. That won't do. And we have stolen through our rebellion the dignity of God's prized creation, which is the image of God in humanity. And we can't repay it. Here's an illustration. I don't know if you're soccer fans. I'm not really a soccer fan. I don't know anything about soccer, actually. I grew up on the Mexican border where my high school team had great Soccer teams, all the kids played all their life. I, 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 didn't, I used to go to the games and cheer. I know nothing about soccer. But I do know that one of the big teams in the world is Real Madrid in Spain. Madrid. And I guess they won this, uh, this European Spanish League Cup, right? Copa del Rey, I guess. Um, this is a crowd in the South. You guys are college football fans. You're like, uh, soccer? What? <laughs> well, anyway, it's this game where you kick a round ball. Um, they actually call it football in other parts of the world, more appropriately so. But anyway, so this particular team, Real Madrid, I think it was, they won the Copa del Rey, right? 
And so they are now celebrating with their fans. This just happened the other day. I saw this on, on the news. They're celebrating with their fans, and they're on top of this, like, double-decker buses, you know, the ones you see in Europe where the people are up on top of it. And one of the players, one of the star players for this Spanish team, I think maybe he had had a few too many. He actually dropped the Copa del Rey, like the trophy. He dropped it in front of the bus as it was going about 10 miles an hour, and the bus ran over the trophy. <laughs> and everybody kind of stops, and a couple of Spanish police officers run out like, oh, snap. I mean, it was destroyed. It was gone. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Friends, this is the way I think. Everything I see is like, oh, that's a good picture of the gospel. Because, see, we have dropped the trophy. We have smashed the prize of our own dignity. And we have ran over it with the bus of our rebellion. And we are unable, friends, we are completely unable to super glue that trophy back together as to anything presentable to God. The best thing we could do is go down to some little dime shop, trophy shop, and hand them a little replica plastic trophy with the leg broken off. That's the best we can do. Who can replace the trophy? None of us, except for Christ. Why must Christ die? Because in his humanity, he has recreated the beauty of God's image and dignity and human worth. And he has become the man. He has become the new man, the new Adam, the sinless, perfect, obedient Adam, when all of us Adams have rebelled. And so he offers himself as the sacrifice. So this is the glory and the scandal and the beauty of the cross, friends. That God actually gives us what he calls for in the person of the perfect man, Christ. And he pours out his wrath on Jesus. He punishes Jesus, who is the only one that is worthy to bear that penalty and satisfy the justice of God. That's why the Bible says in Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because if you're a Christian, the wrath and the punishment of God has been satisfied. It's been replaced. It's been redeemed. It's been soaked up by Christ. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. He, as Spurgeon said, and we read this Friday night, he drank Damnation dry. It's gone. If you're a Christian. But friends, and this is the clear witness of Scripture. And I don't say this with any joy or arrogance. I say this with humility and a broken heart. That doesn't apply to you just because you grew up in the South. It doesn't apply to you just because you're a member of a church or you're the preacher of a church. It only applies to those who have trusted in Christ, who've repented and believed in him, who've placed the hope of their right standing in what Jesus has done for them. Friends, have you done that? Have you done that? Well, let's continue. That's point number one. Christ died for our sins. Point number two, Christ was 
buried. We'll be quicker with this one. Christ was buried, he says in verse 4, that he was buried. Why is this even important for Paul to mention? Well, what's going on there in the Corinthian church, they're a Greek culture, and there was a rather dominant Greek philosophy that was gripping the hearts of many of the Corinthians. It existed all the way through the New Testament church. It has reared its ugly head through the centuries. And it's this, this Greek philosophy that's called docetism. It comes from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear to be. And it was basically this erroneous line of thinking that Jesus just appeared in the flesh, that he didn't have a real fleshly body like we did, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And so many, many early Christians uh, in, their, their, in the air believed that Jesus just sort of came as sort of like a, a spirit who sort of looked kind of like the hologram image you sometimes see, you know, in a presentation or whatever, that he wasn't actually there. He had clothes, but he didn't come in a fleshly body. In fact, that's the reason later on at the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John, the disciple John writes in 1 John chapter 4, he says, anybody that does not confess that Jesus actually came in the flesh is a, they're the spirit of the Antichrist. So if they can't confess that Jesus actually came in the flesh like you and I have, then they, they don't know Christ. And so this particular error was, was really rampant in the church. And so when Paul says Christ was buried, what he's doing is he's hammering home to those people who think that Jesus was just some sort of Casper-like spirit that really looked almost real, but he wasn't real. He's telling him, no, Christ came in the flesh. He actually died, and he was in a grave. He was in a tomb. Why does Paul mention this? Why is Jesus' full humanity so important? Friends, it's important because if you understand the glory of the incarnation, you realize that we have a God who is not transcendent, but he's actually Come to us. Let me read you some scripture again out of Hebrews. Just sit tight. I'll flip there. Hebrews chapter 2. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, about Jesus, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Listen to this. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That means the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then go, if you're with me, to Hebrews chapter 4, just a couple chapters over. In verse 14 it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we didn't listen to these words. We're talking about the creator of the universe now. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Are you listening to that 20-year-old man? Young man who, who cannot seem to not download that thing on that website? Do you realize that Jesus has felt every temptation that you have felt? Do you realize that conniving businessman who is making an idol of career advancement, who is wanting nothing more than to just manipulate circumstances on the job so that you might be made much of no matter who you trample over? Do you realize that Christ has been tempted in every way as you are? We're talking about God himself who condescended in utter humility to face what we face. We ha he has been tempted, it says, let us then. It says that he was tempted as we are yet without sin. So Christ has taken to the mat and pinned every temptation that we have faced. And when he did that, he accrued, he built up 
righteousness. That then when he died, as Reynolds read from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, he now gives to us. He does more than take away our sin. He gives us his righteousness so that the Spirit of Christ actually dwells in us. So that we're not left alone after our salvation to fight sin on our own. But the one who endured and was victorious over sin now lives in you. And he comes. Thank you, brother. He comes. And he gives you that righteousness. And then it gives us amazing boldness. It says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, the little sentence in there that Christ was buried is monumentally important. Do you realize the magnitude of this? Do you, let's just think about the innumerable dimensions of God. He is holy and just, yet he's compassionate. He is strong and mighty, yet he's tender. He is all-wise and all-knowing, yet he's humble. He is unapproachable, yet he can be touched and buried. Friends, do you realize how scandalous, how unusual this is, how unlike any other religion this is, that God is not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He's not only holy, but he's with you, friends. He is with you. Jesus, God, Colossians 1 says he was the creator of the universe, was buried. God was buried. God was buried. God faced temptation for us. Point number three Christ was raised. It's impossible to overstate the significance of Jesus' resurrection. It proved his claims. You know, friends, sometimes people argue with me about the validity of Scripture, and I think it's an honest question. I love to, I love to chop it up with folks that are skeptics because I sense that the Holy Spirit is drawing them. But, you know, all this stuff about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm grateful for archaeology, um, I'm grateful for cats with PhD that have studied in Scotland that know Hebrew and Greek and they can look at all these variant texts of all these things, that scraps of copies of the New Testament in the first couple centuries that um, we have found that actually verify the validity of what we have as we know of the Bible is that we can be very, 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 very sure, friends, that what we have is what these Bible writers actually wrote. That doesn't mean that we can prove that the Bible is true. It means that what we have is what they actually wrote. In other words, the transmission of the text, the original inspired text, has been superintended and preserved by God. And, and for many people, they want to talk about this, but, but friends, let's just, let's just step back a second. If you come back from the dead and you say that the Bible is true, I believe you. I believe you. That's right. The resurrection is everything, friends. It is the crux. It's the center. It's the apex of Christianity. When Je now, listen, it takes faith to believe this, friends. I'm not trying to prove this to you. I could give to you some things that would certainly make the evidence of the resurrection a more historically reliable fact than even George Washington crossing the Potomac. I could give you facts. I could point to the fact that the resurrection accounts of Jesus in the gospel 
The gospel writers record women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Robert read that from Matthew 28. That's a crazy way to start a new movement in the first century where women's testimony was not valid in court. And so if you're wanting to prove a claim, the last thing that you would do if you had the opportunity to write something to propagate your claim would be to have a woman be the first account, the witness of the resurrection. That in and of itself is a, is a proof, in a sense, the transformed life of the disciples. Peter, who runs away from a little girl around a fire to just a couple days later is preaching in front of people with passion about the resurrected Christ. Friends, we could talk about all these things. I can't prove the resurrection to you. That's a miracle for you to believe that. Only God can give you a new heart. You can't see that for yourself. Grace must do that for you. But friends, I just want to, for those of you that believe in the resurrection, I just want to argue this point. Do you realize the power and the glory in it? I mean, if God comes back from the dead, if he's defeated our greatest enemy, what can stop his hand? Nothing can stop God. What then does it matter these 80 years? What temptation or trial or suffering we may face? We have a God who has defeated our greatest enemy. He has made death his footstool. And if you come back from the dead, you're the king. You're the king. Paul takes great care to be specific about this. I love the clarity of Scripture. It's not just dealing in generalities, but he says, there in verse 5, he says, he appeared to Cephas, who's another name for Peter, then to the 12. So if you want a Corinthian kid, if you're a 15-year-old little skeptic going to the local high school and you got some liberal teacher who's pumping you full of junk, Go to one of the original 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, there's 500 people. Some of them have died, but there's, there's some people that he actually appeared to. Then he appeared to James, who's his brother. Then to all of the apostles. And then he says in verse 8, last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And we know about this account in Acts chapter 8 and 9 when Jesus actually makes a return visit from heaven to speak to Paul. Mano y mano. <laughs> Knocks him off of a horse, slaps him around a little bit, blinds him, whispers in his ear, hey, home slice. Uh, my church that you're persecuting? Stop it, and now give the rest of your life to serving me. <laughs> when Jesus comes back down from heaven, and he roughs you up a little bit, and he causes you to be blind for a couple days, and then he whispers some very stern orders in your ear, that's influential. Here's my point, friends, is that Jesus is more than able to get your attention and interrupt your life. Listen to me now. Jesus is more than able to get your attention and interrupt your life. And listen to me even more carefully. The fact that for some of you, maybe Jesus has not interrupted you may be a sign that he is giving you over to your own lusts. That's what the Bible says in Romans. 
Every time we want to cuddle up to a little hallmark Jesus, then we read these other texts like Romans chapter 1 where these people rebel and rebel and rebel and do whatever they want to do. Maybe come to a little church on Sunday. They'll then just go live their life. He gives them up to themselves. And so some of you in this room who are Christians whose life is hard, you're looking jealously at your friend who seems to have a clear path. And they just get whatever they want. Friends, their prosperity and comfort may be a sign of God's judgment on their lives. Oh, friends, make no mistake, the God of the universe is more than able to interrupt your life. Friends, if you are dealing in secret sin, knowing that you're thinking erroneously that you can just do whatever you want to do, skidding by with half of an effort, and it seems like everything seems to work out, and you have deduced from that that you can get away with that, friends, you right now, even by... The, by the mechanism of my words, God may be warning you that he's given you over to that. Not as a sign of his blessing, but as a sign of his judgment on you. You right now turn from your comfort. Turn from your prosperity. Turn from your sense of self-righteousness. Turn from your ease. And be awakened to the risen Christ. Even right now. If you're a Christian and you're jealous of the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, friends, don't covet these 80 years. Don't covet these 80 years. There's a risen Christ. There's a risen Christ. There's a risen Christ. Someday, we'll make all things right. Friends, I conclude with this. As Paul continues the next few verses, listen to this about the power of grace. Verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Are you struggling with self-esteem or a sense of worthiness if you're a Christian? Or maybe even if we could really unpack your suitcase today, you'd be honest and you'd say, you know, I don't think I'm really a Christian because I don't know if God could ever save a person like me. Paul had similar thoughts. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. See, it wasn't Paul squaring himself away that made him a Christian. It was the pure, free grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Friends, Deep down inside, are you wondering whether or not God could ever use a person like you? Be instructed and encouraged by the words of Charles Spurgeon. If you're from Crosspoint, you know I love him. If you're here for the first time and you hang around, uh, you will get to know this great pastor from England back in the 1800s. He says in the sermon on John 8, 36, which is one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible, which says, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Speaking about the freedom of grace to come and change your life and make you new. He says, to those who are imprisoned in their sin, listen now, friends, listen to the guilty conscience. Listen, listen, guilty conscience, to these words from Spurgeon. To those who are imprisoned in their sin, the word if rings a sweet silver bell of hope. No matter who you are or what you are or how many years you have remained a slave of Satan, if the Son, therefore, shall make you free, the glorious liberator can make you free. 
Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by God. That's Hebrews 7, 25. Perhaps that which weighs upon you most heavily is a sense of your past guilt. You have offended God often, willfully, atrociously, and with many aggravations. Let me stop there and say, friends, oh, that's, that has been the case in my life. Friend, right now, do not covet your own sin as a greater power than Christ's grace. Do not hold on to your sin like a little idol, thinking that God cannot set you free from that thing. You feel that all God, back to Spurge now, you feel that all that God's word says against you is deserved, and every threatening that his book utters is your just due. Can so foul a sinner be made clean? I know that the leopard cannot lose its spots, nor the Ethiopian change his skin by his own efforts. Is there a power divine that can take away the spots and change your nature? Surely it has already happened. No sin that you have committed needs shut you out of heaven. However damnable your iniquities may have been, there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. You may listen to these words. You may have gone to the very edge of hell, but the arm of God's grace is long enough to reach you. You may feel that your tongue is padlocked with blasphemy, your hands bound by acts of atrocious violence, your heart fettered with corruption, your feet chained fast to the satanic blocks of unbelief, your whole self locked up in the bondage of corruption. But there is one so mighty to save that he can set even you free. The blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. And so, friend, I end with these words. Paul says in the last half of the last verse that we read, so we preach and so you believe. Do you believe this? Christian, do you believe this? Is this the all-encompassing reality of your life? <laughs> As the cross gripped you, man. Look, you know, I deserve death. I deserve to be separated from God forever. I was a rebellious, lustful, prideful, arrogant glory thief. And God rescued me, man. Who gets over that? Who moves on past that Christian? Is your heart warmed again with affection for Jesus? Is, is, this, is the gospel the all-encompassing reality of your life? Is your heart aflame with it? Is it, is it your heartbeat? Do you want to engage in friendships this way because of what the gospel has done? Do you want to spend your money because of what the gospel and Christ has done in your life? Do you want to engage with your neighbors? Do you want to love your wife or husband? Do you want to do not do that with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Because the gospel is Christ. It's him. He has become the all-encompassing center of your life. Friend, Christian, are you past that? Does your heart need to be warmed again? And to my non-Christian friend, I'm not going to placate you or coddle you. I'm going to love you and serve you through clarity. You've heard the gospel. You are now responsible to respond to it. Do not harden your hearts. Don't think that next week or next month or maybe once you graduate from college and your fun years are over, then you can give your heart to God. 
Do not presume upon God's grace. Repentance or faith are not something that you can muster. It's not yours to give. It's a gift that God gives you. And right now, if the Spirit of Christ is knocking on your heart, do not harden your heart. Believe in Jesus right now. Believe in Jesus. I'm not asking you to recite a prayer or fill out a card or do something. I'm asking you, as Paul said at the beginning, to receive. If you are even hearing these words now and it is hitting you and it's convicting you and it's stirring your heart, I think that is evidence of the irresistible grace of God that right now is making your dead heart alive. Respond. Now, you are responsible to breathe. You know what babies do when the doctor pulls them out of the birth canal? They breathe. They believe. You can't make yourself born again. You can't hear this message, file it away, and then respond to it years from now. God gives you life. And the very words of the gospel carry the life that they demand. Don't listen to this and then go to dinner at grandma's house and think about how you're going to make your life a little bit better. You will fail. You can't replace the trophy. You can only receive the replacement, which is the new Adam, Christ. You can't give yourself life. But the words that you have heard today carry with them the power to bring you back to life. Now you must believe. You must turn from trust in yourself and you must turn to trust in Christ. See the risen Savior. Now, right now, believe. Look at Him. See Him in your heart. See Him in your mind's eye and trust in Christ. You yourself shall be free. Right now, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take these words, my feeble and weak words, and that you'd use them for your glory. Help my Christian brothers and sisters in this room fall afresh in love with Jesus and the gospel. And so consume our lives with this beautiful gospel of first importance. Let it inform all of our decisions, all of our spending all of our receiving, all of our buying, all of our loving, all of our working, all of our speaking, all of our thinking. Crucify the vestiges of rebellion in us and stir in our hearts affection for Jesus. And for my friends that came into this room not yet trusting in Jesus, cause them to see Jesus whether or not they ever set foot in this church again we care nothing about numbers God would you cause them to see Jesus and then would you plant them in a local church 
this one or some other Bible-believing, Jesus-worshiping church so that their infant faith can be nurtured so that they can spend the rest of their lives making much of you and not themselves. Lord, would you give my friends in this room who need it the gift of repentance and faith, would you cause them to be born again? Would you give them a new heart? Would you make the dead man, the dead woman alive for the display of your glory and for the joy of your people? I pray that you do it. Do it, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name.